Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for gathering us here once more to learn at your feet, to learn in your presence. Be thou exalted in the name of Jesus. Lord, even as we open your word this evening, teach us by yourself in the name of Jesus. Father, I offer myself as a vessel, Father, to be used by you in the name of Jesus, that the words that I speak, Father, will be words from your throne and not just words of my own in the name of Jesus. Father, Lord God, we ask that, Lord, you open our hearts to learn from you today that we would not harden ourselves, neither will we neglect what we are going to hear, neither will we underestimate the things in which we are taught today in the name of Jesus. And Father, we give you all the glory, for it's in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. 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 This is the first time I'll be speaking in our new accommodations. So I'm getting the hang of it in terms of how it feels, what it looks like to stand here and talk to other people and talk about things. But uh, today, we are going to be concluding the book of James. As Sister Mena mentioned, we have been looking or exploring the book of James. I think exploring is our favorite word when it comes to Bible study at this point. Well, we've been exploring the book of James since the month of August. And we have gone through eight other topics or eight other parts in which we have looked through the book of James from chapter 1 to chapter 5. And the last time we were here, we stopped at verse 12. And we learned a lot during that time. We, the last time we were here, some of the things that we had thought about was about the difference between the rich and the poor in the church and the fact that neither is better than the other, but that each side has something to be worried about. So the rich must ensure that they do not use their riches or the things that give them an advantage over someone else for their own glorification or to feel better about themselves. But at the same time, the poor should also know that no matter what it is that they face here on this earth, that the reward that is coming in heaven is way more than anything that they can even begin to fathom. And in this last chapter, or in this last couple of, or this last several verses, between chapter 13 to chapter 20, James was as practical as he always has been. James has, if we've looked through the book of James, or as we've looked through the book of James, I think one of the most defining features of this book, it's his simplicity and his practicality. It's the sense that the things in which we are reading about, the things in which we are talking about, they are things that are relatable, that we understand, that we can all wrap our heads around and be like, oh, okay, this is what he means. This is what he's talking about. This is what he means for everyday life. This is what he means for my life as a believer. This is what he means for me in my everyday waking up and going to bed. So we're going to read from James chapter 5. Can we open to the book of James chapter 5? We'll be reading from verse 13 to verse 20. James chapter 5 from verse 13 to verse 20. I read. The Bible says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, 
and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults to one another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one converts him, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Amen. Like I said, this final several verses of the book of James are incredibly practical, which is why I call it a solution to every problem. So we see a set of problems and we see, will I say, suggestions and applications of what we are expected to do to overcome these particular situations. Because James was an elder. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He had been in that role for quite a number of years. And he had seen a lot, obviously. And because of this, this end just gave, of the many things in which he had seen, he was able to state that, okay, this is a problem that could creep up. And this is what he expected to do about it. So we'll be looking at, we'll be looking at a few of the things in which James talked about, and we're looking at them one by one, and we'll talk about them a bit. And the first one is suffering and abundance. Suffering and abundance. Verse 13 says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any, of, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. And he continues, Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. The problem of suffering and abundance is one that has always been with the church. In fact, has always been with humanity in general. We have times of suffering and we have times of abundance. We have times in which we are low and we have times in which we're excited, we're having fun and all of that. The Bible here says afflicted. And if we look at it in this original context, what this word means essentially is to endure hardship or to suffer through trouble. And James is asking that in this situation, what do we then do? Because, you see, we could say, call upon the Lord. And that is exactly what he's telling that people should do. But this is contrary to human behavior, human will, what we normally would do. You will see examples of where, when we're in danger, when we're in trouble, the first thing that comes to mind is that, okay, how we go run them. How are we going to sort the situation out? You know, I find it very interesting that in certain dire situations, someone is in a spot of bother. Say, for instance, someone is in debt, and the person is in debt of like millions, millions of naira. Like, you know those problems that when you hear them, they sound mind-boggling. Recently, uh, Recently, I heard a story. A family member was going through a particular patch of trouble. And 
that trouble involved some was if was was a financial or was if of a financial nature and he was worried and he was speaking to someone else who was also in a spot of financial trouble so while this person was worried about how he was going to sort out some money in the tens of millions you know if you hear that ah, someone is in financial trouble in the tune of tens of millions you're like ah this person is in, that's, that's some serious danger. And the person he was talking to was like, ah, bros, so that's why you haven't said, ah, don't worry about it now. Do you know what I'm here for? What? It was almost 10 billion in terms of his own financial situation. And when this person that I knew heard about it, immediately he had to just calm down. But what's interesting is that in those kind of situations, if you had to talk to such a person, you had to give advice to such a person, and you told the person that, let's pray to God. Sometimes the first reaction you get is, see, I'm talking about like something realistic. So let's, let's do, how can we do this thing realistically? And that always baffles me because I wonder to myself, is it that we don't consider that God is real? Or do we think that he's just here to play? Or what's going on? If we're in trouble, we're expected to pray. That is what it says here. It said, are we afflicted? Then he should pray. Is someone going through trouble? Is someone going through a hard time? Then what do we do? We pray. But there's another angle, another dimension in which to look at this. You see, there are people who would enter a spot of trouble and they consider it so large so deep, so huge, that they don't even want to pray. They, don't, they can't even begin to think to pray about it. Instead, they start looking at how, can they, how is it humanly possible to get out of this particular situation. But you see, there are a couple of other people who then go another direction. These people, they know God, and with all of their hearts, they want to pray to God. But then, what happens is that they're like, ah, but... I've not spoken to God in a while. My life is not going as it should. I've not read my Bible in the last couple of months. I've not been going to church. So now that I'm in trouble, I'll not start disturbing God. And so because of that, they keep their mouths shut. And they don't say anything. And what this verse is telling us is that that too is wrong. Let's turn to the book of Psalm 50. Psalm 50, and we'll read verse 15. If someone is there, let the person read for me, please. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Amen. So, we must never, cons- we must never think to ourselves that, oh, because I have not been the closest to God, then we will now shy away from him or we will now run away from him in our day of trouble. No. You see, whether we like it or not, more often than not, our, our motives, so to speak, of coming to Jesus are generally selfish. That's the truth. More often than not, we, want to, we, want, we don't want to die. We want to save ourselves. And so we come to Jesus for selfish reasons. But 
Jesus being Jesus, as long as we abide and we let the word of God work its way inside of us, then we'll find that that aspect of us disappears. That aspect of self-preservation goes away and instead we, come, we become something new. God does not have a problem with someone bad coming to him. It reminds you of the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son had wasted all of his valuables and everything, all of his inheritance. And he was in a bad place. In that kind of situation, that's the perfect situation whereby you would not let yourself go back to your father's house because, ah, I've done so bad. It's now when everything has crashed, when all the money has finished. That's when I'll now remember that I want to go and meet my father. There's a hidden pride there that so often we do not take notice of. Sometimes we think to ourselves that we are being noble by not going to meet God when we're in trouble. Maybe because we've not exactly been in the best spot or we've not been good or whatever. And so we don't want to come and meet him. Because of that, we think to ourselves that somehow we've done something noble. We've done something admirable. That uh, let me save this person the trouble. It's not. There's hidden pride in there. Because imagine if the prodigal son had not gone home to his father. Is that not pride? That I would rather continue to eat from the pig's food than to go back to my father and, and humbly admit that I had done something wrong and ask for his help. But that's not the only thing James was talking about here. He says that if we are afflicted, then we should pray. But he gives another directive. He said that, he says that, is any merry, let him sing psalms. Some places will say that, is the person, is, is the person in mirth, let them sing songs of praise. Different versions render it in different ways. But they say the same thing. You see, if we turn to the book of Matthew 13, Matthew 13 tells us about the parable of the sower. It tells the parable of the sower and it talks about how the, par- the sower went out to sow seeds. And you know how the story goes. That some se- fell among the pathways and the birds took them up. Some fell on rocky soil and they didn't have enough moisture. Some fell among the thorns and then they choked out. And then f- some fell on good soil. And I remember listening to a teacher at once who explained something very interesting. He said there are two people who are in danger when it comes to the word and it's those who either have it too hard or those who have it too easy. And he said for those who have it too hard, because it's so difficult, the word of God is not able to seep into them and cause a change as it should. And he says for those who have it too easy, their eyes on the things of the world and is off focus. The Bible tells us that the last day will come just like in the days of Noah where men were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving themselves in marriage, said until the flood came and Noah and his family were on the ark and the ark was closed. When we're in abundance, we must not forget God. The passage in Psalm 50 that we read just now said that call on me in, my time of, in your time of trouble and I will hear you. But you see, something came after that, said that you would give me glory. Therefore, in the times in which things are going well for us, then we must not keep our eyes off of God. 
Because that's what the devil is looking for too. He'll focus on all the things that are going on around us. All the victories that we've had. Everything that we need to celebrate. And then we forget. And because of that, we miss out. And that's something that we must pay attention to and ensure that we do not fall into. And we'll move on to the next point that I want to talk about this evening. We talk about sickness, sin, and confession. Verse 14 reads, it says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he, com- if he, has- and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So verse 14 talks about sickness. Sickness is another thing that everyone deals with on some level or the other. At one point or the other, we've suffered illness. We've had to deal with one thing. And this is also in the purview of the Christian life. Where does from? He saved us from death. He saved us from poverty. And he saved us from sickness. So, here we're directed that if any is sick among you, what are they to do? There's a call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when they say call on the elders of the church, what then are they talking about? In the original Greek, what this word is rendered as is presbyteros. It's the word presbyteros. Interestingly, that's where the word the presbytery comes from. And you have the Presbyterian church today. So the word presbyteros, what does that mean, essentially? It talks about any overseer, bishop, pastors of a local assembly. So what this passage of scripture essentially is telling us is that when we are suffering illness, we have a recourse to come to the elders of our church to pray for us. And the elders are then instructed to anoint such a person with oil and pray for the person. Oil was considered to be something of a cure-all cure-all solution to most problems in the ancient world. And we'll see that there is precedence for this, especially when it comes to praying for the sick. If you turn to the book of uh, Mark chapter 6, let's turn to Mark chapter 6. Verse 13. If you are there, you can read Mark 6, verse 13. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Amen. So we have some precedents for the use of anointing oil to place on people, to pray on them when they are sick by the elders of the church. However, there's something we must also point out here. The following verse says something. 
verse 15. It says, and the prayer of faith shall heal the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. This is a very important point for us to look at because there is a danger of, of turning anointing oil into some sort of idol. You see, it is the prayer of faith. It is the prayer of faith that saves the sick, not the anointing of the oil. It's not the action. It is the faith behind it that then spurs the action. We've talked about this when we're talking about faith and works. When we're talking about faith and works, and we're looking at chapter 2 of James, and we talked about the fact that first and foremost, the most important thing was belief, faith, that God can. And then any action is just an outward manifestation of that faith that already has taken place in the heart of a man. So when the anointing oil is applied on an individual, it is not because the anointing oil is placed on the person and the person is healed, but because of the prayer of faith that has preceded that. And that is something that is very important for every one of us because we don't know where any of us will be tomorrow. That if we are praying for an individual, if we are praying for someone, that it is not the outside, because we've heard stories, we've heard of people who will sell bottles of anointing oil or will sell some other paraphernalia and tell you that if you use it like this, if you use it like that, it brings healing, it brings succor, it brings a solution to the problem. But that's not the case here. What, we're being, what, what is important for us to note is that it is a prayer of faith that saves the sick. And it is the Lord that raises them up. Not us. Not us. That is not us. This is not any of the things in which we have done. But it continues. It says that, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. And this points out something very interesting, which is that some illnesses are a direct consequence of sin. They're a direct consequence of sin. More often than not, you find people who are on extremes. And that's a very common trend, that people are on extremes of a particular topic. And on this particular topic, or in terms of this particular doctrine or teaching, there are people on extremes. So there are some who believe that, you know, any, any illness that someone has, if a Christian is ill, then it's because you've done something. And that's something I would, I would not want any of us to carry about as a belief system because it is wrong. It is wrong. So what will happen if Pastor Billy was to climb the altar and he's teaching and he sneezes and he's like, oh, what has Pastor Billy been doing in the dark? Or if I'm walking by you and I just cough and I, ah, that means Pastor Femi must have said a swear word this morning. But that's not the case. On the other hand, we, almost, we also must understand that there are some illnesses that are brought about by sin. Because that's what sin does. Sin leaves us open. And we'll see an illustration of this in the book of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9.
I will read verse 2. The Bible says, And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on the bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And you have to ask yourselves, I remember when I was a kid, this was incredibly confusing to me. Because I wondered to myself, like, okay, Jesus is supposed to heal him. And he's telling him, your sins are forgiven. Why? How that doesn't tally with anything that is going on. So, in, in fact, the whole controversy that followed after, you know, the Pharisees saying that, oh, look at this man, he's blaspheming. And Jesus saying that, oh, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or tell a man that he should stand up and walk. I found it a bit confusing when I was much younger because I was wondering to myself, what does that have to do with anything? But Jesus was pointing at something here in the fact that it was quite clear that this person, his sickness was brought about by sin. And which was why Jesus first pronounced upon him that your sins are forgiven thee. Going back to our passage, it says that the prayer of faith, the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, those sins will be forgiven him. You might also remember the story of Jesus after he healed the man and he went back to the temple to find him and he told him that go and sin no more lest something worse befall you. That was another example of, sick, of, um, of sin leading to illness. And there are, even, there are even instances where it can lead to death. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 30 shows us something of this part. And I won't read that um, because of time. But that was where Paul was talking to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. I was talking about their disrespect and their disregard for it. And he said, because of this, many are falling asleep, uh, asleep which was a euphemism for death. Actually, it's human death. And we see it here. But the solution to this is a prayer of the presbytery. But not only that, you see, it goes further. And it says that we should confess our, our faults one to another. And pray for one another that ye may be healed. And the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much. So we are told here that not only is going to the presbytery or to the elders of a church for laying of hands necessary, there is also a necessity of confessing our sins to one another. But this is something in which we have to be careful about because there can be some misconceptions when we talk about confessing of sin one to another. In some instances, some have interpreted this to be, oh, go to your priest, do the confessional, and you're fine. Some have interpreted it as any sin that is committed, go to the front of the church and tell everybody that, oh, I sinned. Some have interpreted it as so many different things. But we have to look at this biblically. We must look at this with wisdom. We must understand that when we are being asked to confess our faults one to another, there has to be wisdom in this. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense if a 
if your wrong thoughts popped in my mind and then just paused the sermon and said, guys, guys, before I go on, I just have to confess. I thought about something that wasn't very good. And I just, I want you all to pray for me that the Lord will forgive me about these thoughts that I just had. That won't make any sense. That won't do anything. What we are being told here or what we should understand when it comes to confessing our sins once or another is that as brethren, one of the biggest, one of the biggest strengths of sin is secrecy. Is the fact that nobody knows. So, so many Christians are struggling with so many things. And because they're unable to confess once or another, they continue to struggle. This could be as a result of a number of things. There are some situations in which the church environment, because this is a lesson for every one of us, is a lesson for the church in general, and is a lesson for the individual. Some church environments do not encourage the confession of sins one to another. I remember the story of someone I know who, who was struggling with a particular addiction. This person was struggling with a particular addiction and, you know, the, the fellowship he was going to that time had this new initiative that they called Men's Conference, like Men's Talk. So it was supposed to be this group of Christian men coming together to talk about things that affected guys and have a free space to be able to talk to one another. And this guy went to one of their meetings. And in the process of just regular banter before they even like got into the meeting, someone then mentioned this person's addiction. And when the person mentioned it, like Ben just mentioned like in person and everything, and the leader, the person that convened the thing, made this disgusted face like, like ah, wow, how would someone be doing something like that? Ah, God, 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 such a bad, ah, what's wrong with such a person? And of course, obviously, this person never spoke <laughs> about what he was struggling with. We must have a church environment that is conducive for us to be able to be honest with our faults because none of us is perfect. But the general rule when it comes to sin and confession has always or generally been that if it's a public problem, something that has, that has, that is not hidden, that is there for all, all to see, then a public confession is necessary. And if it's private, then generally, it's also something that they talk to a, their pastor about or even Christian brothers and sisters because we're not, in, we're, we're not meant to be in this thing alone. We have, a, we have an example of this generally in life. We're in school or when we're in school, the general idea is that every one of us is expected to write our exams. Like, I mean, no one should because we know that's not how it always works. But no one should write an exam for someone else. You write your exams by yourself. However, doesn't mean that before the exams, you don't get together to study. Because when I was in university, whenever exams were coming, that's when I became the friendliest person on campus. So friendly. Go and meet all the girls or all the guys that I didn't used to talk to for the entire semester. I'm like, hey, what's up? How are you doing? 
I was thinking, how about we all sit together and let's, you know, let's study this thing together. Let's understand. Let's all know. And maybe you've done it, maybe you've not done it, but I know that's what I used to do back then. But in this Christian faith, we have something similar in that we're not meant to be islands. We draw strength from our brothers and sisters. And therefore, we lean on them. And we learn from them. And when we confess our faults to one another, it is another means of healing. Because when we speak the truth, there is a healing that is involved there that allows God to then come and save us from whatever sickness or disease that is plaguing us at that moment in time. Moving on, we'll talk about the righteous man. And that's the verse that says, or the verse continues. It says, The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous availeth much. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much. Who is the righteous man? Or who is this righteous man? Because so many believers don't even realize that they're the ones that are being spoken about in this particular passage. We are righteous. Not because we've done anything in particular or something spectacular that made us righteous. It's by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, if we turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it said that we have been justified through Jesus Christ. And in verse 19, it tells us, it says that for, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, or, so by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. We have been made righteous by Christ. So, so many believers don't recognize that when they say the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much, we are that righteous man. Therefore, we must begin to understand and see ourselves as such and that our prayers carry weight. Our prayers carry weight. So often, we think to ourselves that I'm not this special person. I'm not this big person. I've not done this amazing thing. I've not done this amazing feat. I've not done this, that, or the other. And because of that, then why would, why would my prayer be of any effect? Or why will it make any sense? Or why will it make any meaning? But this passage here is telling us that it availeth much. But there's something else we must point out there because it says the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much. So what does it mean to have effectual or fervent prayer? The Greek word used there for the word or for the, what would I call it, the incomplete clause, effectual fervent, is the word called energeo. Energeo. And you can imagine when you think about this, the first thing that comes to your mind is energy. Because when I heard that, was the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, oh, energy, energy. But you see, it wasn't simply energy in terms of how much of it can we expend while we are praying. Doing effectual fervent prayer doesn't require that we are, we are shaking our head from left to right and we are throwing our arms in the air and all of that. If that's your means of expression, by all means, go ahead, do it. But this does not mean that this is the only way in which prayer is answered. When we see the word energeo, it means active or operative. So essentially what it means is in our attitude, in our hearts, that we are active in this prayer that we have. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life whereby I'm praying about something and, you know, this speaking in tongues can be a very dangerous thing sometimes. It can be very interesting. 
And what I mean by that is there have been times in my life whereby I'm praying about something and then I start speaking in tongues. And because the Spirit is speaking through you, I am not particularly doing any, will I say, work. Then sometimes your mind begins to wander. Or some, this thing carries you here and then you start thinking of something else. And I'm still speaking. Still blowing the tongues. I'm still going on and on and on. But your mind is no longer there. Your mind is no longer focused on whatever it is that you are praying about. That is not effectual prayer. That's not fervent prayer. It doesn't matter how hard you're screaming out those tongues. It doesn't matter how much you are, you know, shaking your body or whatever it is that you are doing. It's not effectual prayer because it's not active. It's not operative. It's not focused on anything. Which is why it's really important for us to ensure that whatever it is that we're praying about, we have our mind set upon it. And he gave the example of Elijah. He said that Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. And the point that was being made here was the fact that like, we must understand that Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who was very much like you and me. And what I mean by that is that he wasn't suddenly holier. He didn't have some other... And that is the major difference between the Christian faith and, you know, popular culture and superhero, uh, the superhero culture that we see around nowadays or even just in fiction and books and everything. Because there, the idea we have is that there are usually either a select set of people, a special set of people, a special one, a selected person, a chosen one. But as long as we have given our lives to Christ, then we are all chosen, we are all special. Every one of us can offer a prayer to God because Elijah was just like we were. If anything, we are even in a better situation because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So our effective fervent prayer availeth much. It does much. We shouldn't look down upon our capacity as believers. Because, we must, because if we understand that, it is not us, but rather it is Jesus, then we would understand better that it doesn't matter who it is that raises their voice to pray. So your prayer matters. My prayer matters. Every single one of us, when we pray, it matters. It matters to God. Because His Holy Spirit dwells in every single one of us. The Holy Spirit does not discriminate. As long as we accept Him, it comes into us. And finally, I would like to talk about the last couple of verses, verse 19 and verse 20. Which says that, brethren, if any of you err from the truth and won't convert him, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sin. Let's turn to the book of Daniel chapter 12. And we'll read verse 3. Daniel 12 verse 3. Uh, I'll read. The Bible says, it says, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. There is a, there is a reward for turning people back to the way of truth. 
there's a reward for turning people back from the path that leads to darkness. As believers, we have a responsibility to look after one another, especially when one is straying from the faith. We must be careful because this does not mean that we have to heap criticism upon people because they are not living a way in which we want them to live. So, a lot of people will look at this passage and would take it to mean that if a sister is walking on the road and she wore earrings or something interesting like that, they're like, ah, sister, you're saying, you know, turn away so that you will not go to hell. But that's not it. Saying that one walks away from the truth. If someone backslides, if someone turns their back on the truth of Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to reach out a hand and ensure that they are helped. That they don't turn away because in that moment we save their souls from death. And that's something that should be important to us. Because I... I was watching a video yesterday and I remember sending a long VN rant to Pastor Billy because I was upset about something I had seen. And the general idea essentially was that some people were making some comments along the lines of they never understood why Christians were okay with people going to hell. And it frustrated me because I was thinking to myself, like, nobody is happy about that. Nobody wants anybody to go to hell. Or maybe I'm being naive. There are probably some people who don't want some people to go to hell. But then, I don't believe those people are Christians. I don't believe there's any Christian. There's no true Christian that wants anyone to go to hell. But at the same time, we can't turn our backs on the reality of hell. We can't say because we are not okay or we are not happy with the idea of anyone going there, then we suddenly deny it. Or we suddenly look the other way when we see someone walking into it headlong. And we have a responsibility to correct the brethren, to talk to them. And it continues, or the very last verse says that, like, let him know that he that converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sin. The book of Proverbs chapter, 12, um, chapter 10 verse 12 talks about how love covers a multitude of sin. Correcting an erring brother or sister is not being harsh. It's not being mean. Especially when the person is walking away from the faith. It's an act of love. And it covers a multitude of sins. It hides it, as they say. That's what the word connotes. The fact that something is hidden or is submerged beneath waters. And we must have that compassion towards our brothers and sisters. The ones who are falling away. And there are so many of them in the world right now who we might have known for God knows how long. So even as we close this chapter of our Bible study, which is the last of this particular book, we would see that the book of James has been incredibly practical. Teaching us things that affect our everyday life. Teaching us that when we, are, when we suffer affliction, 
we should count it all joy. We should ensure that we are not showing favoritism to anybody because we're all equal in the sight of God. So understand that there is, a, there is there's something we call an everyday faith that is supposed to propel our lives every single day, even as we live and we walk. That we must bridle our tongue and we should ensure that whenever we speak forth words, they are words of grace. That we should ensure that we do not fall to the sin of pride in its various forms because they are in various forms. And we should ensure that we don't fall to it, but rather we should submit ourselves to God and humble ourselves before him. That we should know how we treat the rich and the poor in our midst and ensure that we do not honor one over the other simply because of material wealth or whatever it is that they have in this world. And that in certain practical situations, whether in affliction, whether in merriment, whether in sickness, whether in disbelief, the things in which we can do that would help us to live as the proper Christians that we have been called to be. I mean, God help us in Jesus' name.